Miller. For this episode of Tiger Turf Talk, we host Mr. Andrew Green of Green Designs. Andrew is one of the leading golf course architects in the United States. He has worked on different courses from Shinnegock to Oakmont to Oak Hill. So many prestigious golf courses to his latest work at Congressional right down the road from us here in Oaksville at Brentsville, where we were hoping to visit at some point last year, but we're struck with COVID and we're unable to attend. But it it's just so fascinating what he does and the different aspects of our industry and how it plays such a big role in what he does as an architect from tee box to putting green there are so many levels that we don't really understand and this podcast does such a fantastic job of bringing all those things to light for all turf grass managers whether it's sports turf golf course landscape there are so many aspects that we need to be clear and understand before we go forward with our practices and understanding all the different components that of just maintaining the turf grass to better our spaces in this green industry. We learned different things that Mr. Green has gone through from being told that he was unable to pursue any interesting career in golf course architecture because he doesn't have a famous golf name or anything along those lines but through his perseverance and his dedication to his passion he truly showed our students what it takes to be successful not only in this industry but in life and to really have the knowledge of what it takes to not be good at something but to be passionate as well as good as something that you are going to pursue in this life we hope you enjoy the talk with Mr. Green. We cannot thank him enough. Uh, he has been a big supporter of the program over the years, and it's been such a honor to have him on this podcast. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Tiger Turf Talk. Good afternoon, everybody. Welcome to the 18th episode of Tiger Turf Talk. I'm your host, Drew Miller, with your co-host, Rylan Harris. Today we have on a fantastic guest, uh, probably one of the most interesting guests that we could possibly have on. It's Mr. Andrew Green, um, golf course architect, well-known throughout the industry. How are you doing today? I'm great. Thanks for having me. Of course. Thank you for coming on. So I kind of want to just get into it. Um, you're a part of the one of the most unique portions of the turf grass industry when it comes to being a golf course architect uh, with some of the great uh, greatest golfers out there like Arnold Palmer and architects like Robert Trent Jones. Um, what has it been like to get to be a part of such a lucrative part of our industry and how did you get there? Yeah, well, uh, you know, I, it's kind of crazy when I was a junior in high school, this was kind of a goal of mine. And a lot of people told me it was impossible. Uh, I didn't have a famous dad that, that played golf. And uh, I'm not the, the world's greatest golfer. I can, I can hold my own. But, I, you know, those early on and in, I guess, post-war uh, architecture, 
architecture, most of the dominant architects had some connection to a, a famous golfer of some sort, whether it be a family. And so I off uh, interviewing at Virginia Tech, looking at the turf program, my brother had attended Tech and had a degree in, in turf, a four-year degree. And I went to visit the uh, advisor there and talked about what it might take to be a golf course architect. And he suggested that I really needed to look at landscape architecture. So I went across campus to the architecture school and uh, talked to a, a gentleman by the name of Dean Bork. And he actually had been a golf course architect in his earlier life, uh, working out of an office in Chicago. And his kind of, you know, um, statement to me was that it was a very hard business to break into and that it was hard to feel fulfilled because you end up kind of um, paying your dues for so long in the business to, to finally get somewhere that it, it can be tough and frustrating and something that you really have to persevere with. And I thought about it and I said, let's go, let's go do this. So I uh, went to Virginia Tech. I was in the five-year landscape architecture program. It's a mandatory five-year program. The first year, we're actually, you were with all of the architecture students. So building architecture, industrial design, uh, maybe, I guess, even maybe some urban planning kind of people, you know, a, a pretty wide breadth of design. We were all together uh, as freshmen taking a lot of classes. And that was pretty interesting. And then uh, ended up getting my four-year turf degree in that five-year period. Um, pretty dedicated student. I took 18 hours or more the whole way through uh, to make it all happen. Uh, just driven to, to do it. I, I'm sure <laughs> looking back on it, my, my friends probably made pretty good fun of me. You know, I'd, I'd dress in khakis and a golf shirt to, to class. Uh, I, I dressed the part, I guess. Uh, I was a little bit of a loser. But, uh, uh, you know, it's what I wanted to do. And, no uh, chance. I worked at, yeah. no way loser. Come on. <laughs> I don't know. Right. Looking back on it, I guess I'm doing okay now. But uh, I'd, I'd say you're doing then, pretty well, you know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, right. So um, I was. I'd worked in golf course maintenance growing up. Uh, I started actually as a, a cart boy, I guess, and, and picking driving range golf balls and loading bags out of cars and stuff, doing that local club and that just really wasn't for me uh, I loved golf course maintenance way more and so uh, in working that field and then doing what I was in college I came to the conclusion I really needed to work in golf course construction and so between my fourth and fifth year I went to work for McDonald and Sons who are a golf course renovation builder that are located between um, DC in Baltimore. And uh, Chip McDonald, the owner of the company, really allowed me to see an entire range of, of what's out there in building golf courses, and then also to a certain extent designing them. And when I finished that summer, uh, not, not long after, he offered me a full-time job when I finished uh, at the following, at the end of the, the following year. So I, I went to work for him and worked for 14 years designing and building golf courses uh, for McDonald and Sons. And then um, in 2014, I decided, looking at the landscape, that there was an opportunity for me to do my own thing and uh, took the leap of faith. 
and uh, the rest is history, I guess. That's incredible, especially with everyone doubting you and telling you you can't and just sticking to it. That's just awesome to hear. Um, like you, like you said, your brother was a Hokie. Um, I'm curious, sort of as a fellow Hokie family, my brothers and sisters went to Tech. Um, what was it like to sort of have that that Hokie atmosphere and the Hokie, you know, what it means to be a Hokie and whatnot. And how was Blacksburg for you as a student, sort of just to give the kids an idea. It really hasn't changed too much. Obviously it's added on a bunch, but again, it's still the same, uh, same tradition, you know, and the what's born and bred in Blacksburg. Could you sort of give that idea of what that experience is like? Sure. Absolutely. So I grew up north of Roanoke about uh, 15 to 20 minutes, maybe a little more north of Roanoke. So I could go on back roads to Blacksburg and be there maybe 45 minutes, maybe an hour or down Interstate 81 South and about the same. So I was close enough to home to, you know, if I ever needed something, I could find my way there. My parents could, could come down. Um, that was a cool, I guess, part of it. But the real reality is once you were in Blacksburg, you're in this kind of uh, tight-knit community that's really unlike anything else. Uh, from a college town standpoint, being in such a, not necessarily remote, but you're just, you're kind of off to yourself to a certain extent. And um, so you build a, a real camaraderie with every single person. Um, you know, moving in, I, I lived in Pritchard Hall my freshman year, which was at the time one of the largest all-male dorms uh, east of the Mississippi. And it was it was wild, you know, the, the things that might happen. I remember one night uh, some guys set a trash can on fire inside the elevator. I mean, just crazy things, not not trying to scare off parents. Classic Pritchard, classic <laughs> Pritchard. <laughs> yeah, right. I heard so, stories about a sofa on fire in the courtyard, but that that's... The elevator sounds fun, you know, geez. <laughs> yeah, yeah, good times. Um, and then, you know, it's this, uh, uh, my wife, I met my wife at Virginia Tech, and uh, we kind of still chuckle today about walking across the drill field as a freshman, you know, living on campus and, and walking across that vast expanse, especially on a, a cold winter's day. And, uh, you know, sometimes you can tell the difference between, uh, uh, you know, a a freshman or maybe even a first semester student versus someone that hasn't been there um, or has been there a while by walking across the drill field, you know, the, the people that are looking down at their shoes versus the people that are looking up and, and saying hello to, to others. Uh, it's, it's a pretty interesting uh, transformation. And then just being there, you know, you just build such great relationships by, by being next to um, your fellow students you know, in the general classes, you, you are going to have classes where there's a lot of kids, you know, in a general math class or maybe a biology class or whatever. You, know, you might have a, a couple hundred students, which is a little overwhelming, uh, especially for a, kind of a smaller town kid like myself. But then you also have your kind of the classes wherever your journey leads you, whatever major you might be looking at, you'll get to some smaller classes where, you know, the people beside you have some of the same uh, dreams that you have and building those relationships with those people there's nothing like it you'll share that with those folks for the rest of, of your life and it helps you kind of find yourself and, and figure out what you want to do in life and then looking back on it I have a group text with a group of I don't know, eight to ten friends that I text probably four or five times a day and they're all Hokies 
uh, you know, we stay in, in close contact. And uh, the, the person, probably my best friend that I talk to as much as anybody is a Hokie. And so, uh, yeah, it's, it's a life, uh, it's a lifelong thing. And then of course, to be a part of uh, the athletics and, and the pride behind that is certainly awesome. Uh, you know, the, the, the tailgating atmosphere for football, um, the Castle Guard, Castle Coliseum, great place for a basketball game. They're doing good. They're doing yeah. good. We're, we're, last night. Uh, no, we're a basketball school. school. Exactly. <laughs> yes. Now, oh yeah. man, football's killing yeah. me. But hey, I'll take basketball, you know, especially because UVA is a basketball school. I'm just saying, UVA, you better watch out. Right. Right. Yeah, so it's uh, I wouldn't change it for the world. You know, I had some other opportunities coming out of high school that I, I evaluated briefly, but uh, it was the right place for me. So if you could explain to us a little bit about your educational background and what aspects you learned along that road that really helped you understand how to construct a golf course. Yeah, it's a great question. Um, you know, there's a difference between kind of book smarts or learning and, and real world what, what's out there in the field and I think one of the great things about the program that, that you all are involved in is you're getting that you're seeing the combination of knowing why things are done and then how to do them and that combination is incredibly powerful and I would say something that's helped me more than anything else in knowing that um not only what I'm doing, but why those pieces, you know, how they work together, uh, why I'm doing certain things. And, you know, from a landscape architecture perspective, uh, the grading, a grading class, learning how to move dirt uh, with lines on a paper, that was huge. Drainage concepts, trying to figure out how water moves. Um, it's amazing. Obviously, <laughs> water goes downhill, but there's a lot more to it and trying to figure out how to move water gracefully is a, is a big part of what I do on a daily basis. So that was, that was huge. Um, you know, from a turf standpoint, every turf class I took allowed me to understand um, how the, the product I created was going to be maintained. And um, through that and through working in golf course maintenance, you know, seeing that real side, you know, taking that the knowledge learned in school and applying it um, certainly has helped um, woody landscape plants uh, you know learning about all the different trees and uh, um, shrubs and all that plant material stuff I certainly use that on a daily basis Talk about um, it, it can be a, a little overwhelming at times when you're learning you know dozens of plants at a time actually was an undergraduate TA for, uh, for that class. That's a long story for another day, but yeah, it's, uh, yeah. Trying to do winter identification, right? True. Oh my um, goodness. <laughs> Look at all the pretty leaves. Now know what the tree is when they're gone, you know? <laughs> uh, uh, nothing like having your professor stash a few leaves from the raw plant underneath, uh, just to, to make sure he's keeping you honest. Uh, Nice but, guy. Yeah, I mean, those were a couple of the things. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> and then, uh, you know, I the craziest thing I use that I tell I have three kids, 
and uh, my oldest is in high school and actually taking geometry right now. And I uh, actually, I use the Pythagorean theorem to lay out rectangular T's all the time. And I kind of chuckled to myself about how, you know, that was one of those things for sure. I said in high school geometry class and thought to myself, when in the world am I ever going to use this stupid formula? And here I am building a golf course uh, for people to hit a little white ball around. And sure enough, I, I use it often. Uh, now with smartphones, though, there's an app for that. If you uh, if you didn't know, I'm sure you guys did. I think the virtual learning right now, I think everybody's found all the apps, to be honest right. with you. <laughs> oh, man, that's great. Um, so sort of to go into that, um, something that I've always found super interesting, and it, it has to be perfect no matter what site analysis is critical to any kind of construction from skyscrapers to homes uh but in a in golf course architecture i feel like it's so much bigger than that because even just one hole there are so many components that go from the tee box to the green and even just the green itself there are so many components uh could you give the kids sort of an idea on how you come up and construct in your head, the site based on the analysis you made for not only just one hole, but I mean, you have 18 holes or nine holes, whatever the construction is. What is that process like for you specifically as the architect? Yeah, so um, a huge part of what we're doing now is using some technology, um, updated aerial photography, drone footage, um, I mean, heck, even my, my smartphone to be able to walk a golf course or a property and record information that then when I'm sitting down to do the hard work of, of design that I have a lot of resources at my fingertips. So um, aerial photography is probably the number one thing we utilize. Um, there's services now where you're getting updated aerials multiple times a year. So it used to be that I would have an aerial that might be five to 10 years old and I'd have to walk a property and update the aerial to see if trees had fallen down or if it was an existing golf course, things that had changed uh, before I even got there um, in the meantime. Now with the updated technology, that's certainly helped. Uh, topography is huge. Understanding uh, where the low is, <clears throat> where the highs are, you know, where water's moving again, that's super important. Um, understanding the sight lines across the property. And when you're routing a golf course, it's really important to understand, you know, when you're standing, <clears throat> excuse me, in one, one point and you're playing to another, you know, what's the presentation going to, to represent? How much dirt has to be moved to make it work? Uh, there's a lot of that that, that goes into um, the design of a golf course. In the soil conditions, uh, that's a huge thing. Uh, soils classes, if you, I don't know, you know, in college, the soils classes can be a, a little monotonous, to be honest. You know, you're just talking about dirt. Was Dr. Daniels there? Oh, yeah, it's there? important. Yes, sir. Absolutely. Oh, my yes. goodness. You want to yeah. talk, talk about a uh, fossil. Great man. Don't get me wrong. But he's been there forever, from what I've heard. Yes. Um, and he has yeah. this stutter. And I feel so bad for him. Loves dirt. <laughs> he does. It's crazy. And it's yeah, funny, the stories true. he yeah. said about uh, going to China and going and doing all these different things for different countries. I'm like, 
wow, this is insane how much you can do just with soil, you know? Sorry, I was just curious if he was still there when you were there. No, no, yeah, Lee was there. Yeah, took his class. Um, and then things like soil fertility and all the other components, soil uh, taxation, right? Remember that one, Drew? Oh, yeah. Uh, so that's the whole, I don't know if you know much, do you guys do that at all? Uh, we go, we do uh, some soil stuff, uh, whether it's just going over the textures and whatnot and actually out in yeah. the field. Soil testing, uh, teaching them how to read it and whatnot. Um, but we don't go too far into it because I don't want to make it too difficult, you know? <laughs> no, I got it, you know, for sure. But I mean, for the, the class, uh, you know, there's a whole class in, in understanding how different soils can be classified and named. And when you, even just learning the basics, you'll, you can quickly understand how landscape position, meaning where on a property a piece of ground lays, it, it can give you a, a clue, just the property, just where you are, not even digging a hole. You can have a sense of what the dirt looks like underneath, which is pretty cool. Um, and then, you know, from a soil standpoint, a golf course, like uh, yesterday, I was on a call with Bayville Golf Club down in Virginia Beach. And we were talking about they moved 400,000 yards of dirt when they built the golf course originally. And it was a flat, you know, flattish dairy farm. And so now the soils are different. Different areas receive different soil when they dug the ponds. And so that's something I certainly have to take into consideration. And then sunlight, um, sunlight's a huge thing. Existing golf courses and any kind of new construction or new holes, you have to take into account where the sun rises, sets, different times of year. Um, and there's some great technology that helps us see that, you know, whether it be an app on your phone where you can see where the sun's supposed to be at different times of the year. Uh, that's huge. You know, grass needs sunlight to grow and air movement. So those are things, those are some other things, I guess, from a site analysis standpoint. Oh, I guess I should say water source is the most important of all. You can't have a golf course without some sort of water source. We're doing a better job of finding ways to, uh, you know, have golf courses that are more sustainable using less water. But at some point you have to have wells, an irrigation pond, a river, something uh, to have water. That sounds incredible. And I want to sort of talk about something you were just talking about. Um, you said you've been doing this for quite some time and uh, before these apps and before everything that has sort of made life a little bit easier, I'm sure. Um, what has it been like in, again, a golf course architect's standpoint? How has technology advanced? How have you seen it adapt to the way you do your job? Um, even from, I mean, smartphones haven't been around since the 90s. So, I mean, like you're talking about how you recorded different things, walking the course and whatnot. Um, how have you seen it grow in your time in the industry? when I took pictures and wait, you know, we're lucky to have a one hour, uh, you know, photo development thing. Uh, I'm sure your kids can't even wrap their head around that. But uh, yeah, I'm services building over uh, uh, by the, the old chicken farm. Uh, there was a building up there where I got my film developed in college. And uh, so that's, you know, very simply, that's something that that's really changed. Um, Measuring and um, uh, survey equipment, huge change. 
when I started, um, most the most complicated thing we typically had in our toolbox was a, a laser, a grade laser that basically shot one plane uh, with a laser and then you had a, a receiver on a rod and you would shoot elevations and then have to manually record them on a piece of paper. You know, today I can take an existing green and run a piece of equipment over it or scan it with LIDAR and I can have a point every, you know, half inch apart of the grades on that green and I can replicate it back exactly the way it was that we could have never done uh, even 15 years ago. So uh, that's that's been huge. Uh, construction equipment, both uh, from a compact, you know, smaller equipment with a lighter footprint, meaning you know, not destroying things that are running across uh, grass, you know, out on an existing golf course. That's huge. Um, if any of you, uh, any of your students love running equipment, uh, the tilt bucket on an excavator. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I get lost sometimes on uh, Instagram. I'll watch, you know, especially the guys in the UK the where they're perfect, grading something and going perfect, nuts. Perfect, like know? left and right. And they, yeah. everything they want is perfect. And I'm like, I would have screwed up after the first one, you know? <laughs> yeah, for sure. But it's like, it's almost an element of uh, video gaming, right? It, uh, exactly. It's a, it's a very similar skill. So though that uh, piece of equipment, I think, is one of the biggest changes for me to actually replicate older work is that knuckle bucket or whatever that swivel, whatever you want to call it, um, on an excavator, because it allows you to create the same illusion or um, feel to earth moving as an old horse and plow scoop. Because if you think about, if you look at an old picture of a horse and plow scoop, the dimensions of that versus the dimensions of these excavators are very similar. So you can do some really cool stuff and make um, your shaping, the way you're moving the dirt look older. Um, so yeah, that that's a, a great use of it. And then AutoCAD, I was at Virginia Tech, uh, I was the last class in landscape architecture that had pretty much zero AutoCAD experience. Um, the professors at the time really felt that they didn't want their students uh, being um, draftsmen that, that didn't get to uh, learn the abilities to uh, critically think and, and come up with design ideas and, and be um, maybe, I don't know, more well-rounded is, is the right term, but um, CAD is a huge thing. It's, I started having to draw go <laughs> sound like an old man here I started drawing on uh, you know mylar and I was starting with some early plans uh, for golf courses that were completely drawn by pen on on paper um, and that's come a long way so I, I the, what I uh, my tablet I draw if I'm drawing anything right now pretty much it's it's on my tablet and it gives you a similar feel and, and warmth to, um, to your drawings, but it's all digital. And so sort of segueing into the design phase of everything, um, you, the site analysis obviously helps you with what your limitations and your parameters are. Um, what, what is the design sort of process for you what is it that you're trying to 
create, obviously you're creating the environment for the turf grass and other plants to thrive, but obviously you, you're a golfer, as you said, what is it that you're doing in your design to create uh, that sort of hole and make it unique in a sense so that it's what they're looking for in their new golf course or hole, whatever you're reconstructing or constructing? Each project um, that I'm working on currently there in DD was a, a case of the routing pretty much stayed the same, but it was a, a brand new golf experience from the first tee to the last green. And then there's historical things where I'm, I'm referencing stuff from history and trying to um, honor original architecture, you know, restoration stuff. And then there's projects all between and, and new golf construction and all kinds of different stuff. But, but I'd say, you know, my, my general philosophy with it is I'm trying to create golf courses that are enjoyable and want their golf course to be hard. And, and we have certainly some golfers that just love to, to get beaten up in the process sessions about making sure something is still challenging. So enjoyable doesn't have to be easy, but it, and, and there's a certain level of challenge to golf that is um, maybe intoxicating as quickly as possible, but enjoying it at the same time. And then for everybody in between, I'm really just trying to find cool ways to play and different ways to play golf uh, across the property and developing a golf course that allows you to play however you are best able to. So if you're a great driver of the golf ball, then you have that opportunity to use that to your success. If you're a great iron player, then you have that opportunity. Uh, if you're a great putter, then there's an element of that that, that makes it uh, makes, allows you to be successful. And then, you know, around the, the putting surface, you know, everybody's headed for the same target, regardless of distance. You know, what, what does that look like? How does it feel? What are the different shots that you can play around it? And when you, as I've studied it more and more, the more I've come to realize that each piece of property is completely unique. And so if you figure out ways to use that ground that you have in those unique ways, then you can create golf that nobody else has, right? Because every golf course is its own deal, has its own piece of ground. It's the, you know, its own orientation to the sun, the, its own lows and highs and all those different things. So drawing that out allows you to create cool and interesting golf and make each golf course unique. That's awesome, especially when trying to be a golfer myself. Sometimes you're always paying attention to different things. We'll just say I'm not great. Um, but when you're doing this process, uh, are there any main concerns or priorities? Um, obviously, you have 
the turf grass that you're worried about and the plants. Uh, are there other factors that go into the process of designing and maybe budgetary concerns or things like that that you're really worried about? Um, yeah, I mean, anything that you prioritize in that process uh, would be awesome to know about. Yeah, certainly. So um, I like to often think about the the uh, optimum solution, the, the, the craziest design, the, uh, the most amazing thing possible, right? And that's kind of over here. And then we kind of have the budget. How is it going to be maintained? What are the factors that are there for long-term sustainability? So somewhere between those two so often is kind of reality and where things meet. So understanding how a golf course is going to be maintained, what's the budget of the golf course, um, what's the size of the staff. Um, you, you don't want to miss opportunities. You don't want to turn your back on the best golf possible on any project. But you have to understand that, um, you know, bunkers that have to be hand raked and having 300 of them on a golf course and you have, you know, 15 people on the maintenance staff, that's not going to work. So, you know, there has to be some restraint and knowledge about uh, the way those pieces interact. Because at the end of the day, you know, I'm going to look, uh, my project, my work will look the best if it's maintained well and enjoyed. And so, you know, understanding that um, having enough restraint, I guess, to make sure that what's being designed and implemented works is important. Um, grass species is a huge part of that discussion. Heights of cut is a huge deal. Talking about, you know, how many different mowers do you have to have to maintain this golf course? Do you have even the, the distance between the putting surface and maybe a greenside bunker? You might have putting green height, collar height, first cut height, rough height. Um, and then you might have a, a mower that has to mow the bunker banks like a fly mow. So now you're talking about maybe a, a walking greens mower, a triplex on the green, a walking mower or triplex on the collar, the same thing for the first cut of rough. Then you have the primary rough that might be a rotary push or a ride on rotary deck. And then you have whatever is a very intricate grading potentially. You know, you're talking about five different things happening in one small space. So, uh, you know, a, a question I often ask superintendents when I start working with them is, you know, what are the heights of cut you have between the putting surface and a bunker? Or what are the heights of cut you have around your golf course? You have native grasses or, or taller turf. Um, and so the, those all play into uh, the design and then also the implementation and the sustainability. Um, equipment usage is something that, that I try to think about you know, the difference between triplex and a green and walk mowing a green, what are the difference in the, in the limitations of space needed to turn that equipment? That certainly comes into play. Uh, materials are a huge part of budgets, uh, bunker sand, greens mix, gravel, uh, all the raw materials, sod, uh, the things that you need to build a golf course, they have to come from somewhere. How far away do they have to come? What's the quality of that product? How consistent can you get it? Um, it's kind of monotonous, I guess, but those are things that are important uh, to the overall product. And that's crazy with everything and understanding distance for all that stuff and whatnot. Um, 
is really, really great to have that opportunity to hear about and learn about it. Um, with everything that goes into that, um, we talked about the site analysis. What is it that with the subgrade and you have the different uh, areas of the golf course, whether it's tees, golf, fairways, roughs, could you sort of describe to the kids the subgrade that goes into all that and how they differ from each other? Absolutely. So um, often I'll think or say that, you know, you can have anything. You can do it any way you want, but you want to do it uh, some manner that, that works, right, and works for you. So let's talk about tees. Tees can be built out of just dirt, just topsoil, just whatever dirt is on your property. And they can work pretty well, depending on the quality of that material uh, and what grass you have on it and how you're maintaining it and that stuff. Um, the highest, probably the, the higher level tees have um, six inches roughly of mix. So it's a sand-based medium that are underneath the grass. And then underneath that, is a series of drainage tile that are interconnected network on roughly 15 foot spacings. It, the spacing can change some, but roughly that. There's some tees that might even have a foot of material underneath them. Some have even more elaborate drainage systems. Bunkers are some of the most complicated things we build. They're hazards, they, they shouldn't be that complicated, but they are. Uh, bunkers have an internal drainage system made of, of drainage, perforated drainage tile that then feeds into your overall drainage system underground. Most bunkers these days have some kind of liner in them. Um, 10 years ago or so, it was mainly some kind of fabric material. Now it's mostly some kind of aggregate, meaning it's some kind of stone-based product. Uh, Better Billy Bunker is a stone-based product with a polymer that's sprayed on it, and that's a two-inch lift underneath the bunker sand. Uh, there's things like capillary concrete that are porous concrete that you put in the bottom of the bunkers in a two-inch lift beneath the sand. Um, and there's a, a whole range of other things. Uh, there's rubber, crumb rubber that's been used underneath it. I mean, all kinds of things underneath the bunker sand. And then bunker sand itself is anywhere from four to six to 12 inches deep in bunkers. And that sand is typically either manufactured, meaning it's crushed from a larger particle, or mined out of the ground and can be very expensive. I have a project where it's 125 to $150 a ton delivered. It's a, it's a lot of money uh, when you're talking about maybe even a million dollars in bunker sand on a golf course, just the sand. Uh, fairways are typically just the, the native soils, but there's some high-end clubs that have sand capping where there's a, a full, like, like the tees, there's six to 12 inches of sand or sand uh, peat mixture on the fairways. And then greens, um, there was a lot of experimentation about greens construction. I think we pretty well settled on some sort of USGA, what's called a USGA green. The United States Golf Association worked in the 60s to try to set uh, a list of guidelines for good greens construction. And what it is roughly today is 12 inches of that sand peat mixture. Um, so it's a combination of sand, soil, and peat moss. Uh, or can be straight sand, but, um, and then that rests on four inches of gravel that's washed, very clean gravel that's uh, three eighths inch minus. And then underneath that is a herringbone drainage system that can be everywhere from five to eight feet apart. 
to 15 feet apart is kind of the maximum that we want. And then that drainage system ties out um, to your, either to an outfall point or to your larger drainage system. So it's way more complicated than it appears uh, when you're playing on top of it. For sure. Now, um, with everything that sort of goes into that, is the budget what changes the certain amount? So like the caps smaller or the drains are further, is it all based off a of budget or is it based off something else? Uh, and what the club wants really? Yeah, it's, it's performance. Some of it's performance, you know, a, a major championship venue that has to perform after even a heavy rainfall. There are, and typically the budgets are a little more, but th those are the places where we're most anxious to get the water off the golf course. Uh, so the drainage system might be a little more elaborate. Um, and then it, it's beyond that, it's you've got to make sure it works, right? You don't want to spend two thirds the money and have something fail when you could spend the full amount that you need to and make sure it works. Absolutely. Um, the next thing I want to sort of talk about um, is probably one of the most complex things um, and for me to know and understand it. What is it with irrigation systems on an 18 hole golf course that make it so complex? Is it just because of the overall size of it or is it because it's just the way that it's set up or could you just give an idea of how, with us on our athletic fields, it's very simple with certain zones in a certain way and with all the different topography and all the different ways the golf courses are oriented, how does that impact how you lay out the irrigation for that course? Great question. So most of the times I rely on, on uh, my, my fellow irrigation designers you know, the, the guys that do it, do that to primarily as their business, but I'll, I'll give you at least my shot at it, Drew. Um, if anybody has, if, if I misspeak, I'm sorry, but it, it has a lot to do with the idea that, um, uh, you know, individual head control is something we're really striving for on, on most golf courses, meaning that we want to be able to turn a sprinkler on and off, uh, by itself. You know, when I started, that was, uh, a pretty, uh, that was a rare thing, um, you know, block systems where you're turning a valve and four heads or six heads or however many heads are coming on was much more common and maybe something you might see like you see in athletic fields. For golf courses, having individual head control is huge because if you, if you had a fairway where the valves here and the fairway slopes down and that valve were to come on and the heads along the line from that were to pop on at the same time, well, the head at the high end running the same time as the head at the low end, you would have to run the, the high, the head that's highest elevation longer. And that water would want to get downhill and then you'd be wet on the bottom and still potentially dry on the top. So that was a, a huge reason for this individual head control. And then it's all about your water window, meaning that your pipe sizing and your pump station support how many heads can run at one time. And if you have you know 250 acres to water, and you're trying to water it in as short a window as possible just before daybreak to try to provide the best turf quality and reduce disease pressure and things. And there's philosophies about that watering practice I'm not gonna get into, but just in general, um, you know, you need 
to have the, the supply system to turn on as many heads as you need to, to run through. The cool thing is with the computer systems and control packages that are out there now, the computer can tell you kind of what your water window, how many heads you have on. You can turn heads on and off. Uh, you know, if you have a, a dry area, you can turn that head on longer. If you have a wet area, you can turn that head off completely. Um, so it, it, it's, you know, it being more site specific. And then in reality, it uses less water. You'd think more heads, more control, that would mean more water. And in reality, it's less water because the water is, is targeted. Absolutely. Um, with your degree in turfgrass, you have worked all over the country with different regions and different aspects of what turfgrass management is. Um, could you sort of go through what the process is of selecting the different turf grasses for those different golf courses? I mean, I saw on your website, you've worked from Shinnecock all the way across the country in California. What would be the process of selecting the turf grass for you? Or is that someone else's job? Uh, just sort of how that goes into golf course architecture. Yeah, I think in large part, I'm relying on the golf course superintendent to help select grasses. Um, at the end of the day, that's the person that has to come up with a game plan and, and have the staff to maintain it. So in a large part, they're the ones that are, are really uh, driving the, the bus when it comes to grass selection. I certainly will help uh, voice an opinion or, or show um, things I've seen, discuss things I've seen. And then a lot of times it's really what is uh, best for the region in, in which you're working. And then comes this idea of trying things, you know, it's great to try things and be successful. It's awful to try things and fail and fall flat on your butt. So, uh, you know, using tried and true materials and grasses has a certain safety factor to it. So you always have to balance that. You don't want to be behind. You don't want to install a grass that then you feel like is, is behind where research and, and technology is moving. But you also don't want to put your neck out there where you're putting something in the ground that you think will work, but you don't know. Um, and so a lot of times it's you're looking at sod farms in the region, what's available. You're looking at seed suppliers. You're looking at your neighbors. You're talking to fellow superintendents and architects and people doing work uh, of what's working for them, uh, what they've seen. Uh, that plays into it as much as anything. Now there's an even bigger like component to everything, especially for you coming into a club or coming into a course that's not really what your home, you're an outsider sort of them. You have to work with certain groups, whether it's the superintendent, whether it's someone who is a part of the greens committee. What is that sort of of like client uh business relationship like for you as the architect um i know a lot of superintendents talk about how the want to sort of make the members happy and whatnot and have to deal with that how is that for you in a sense if it's more just a greens committee whether it's the superintendent or any of that what is that process like with you especially throughout the construction of the golf course Great question, Drew. And it's, 
it can be different things. Every club has kind of its own governance or the way it operates. And, and you have everything from a single owner golf course that's maybe a daily fee where that's the one person you're talking to all the way to a, a county golf course or a municipality where there's you know a, a board of directors that are at a super high level that really they don't have day in knowledge of the golf facility but they're making the decisions of what's getting done um, you know that's a totally different thing most of my work is with private clubs and most of them have some sort of green committee, golf committee or board that I interact with on a uh, regular basis. Uh, some clubs have really cool like architectural committees where it's like it's a they pull people from different aspects of the club uh, to work with me and, and they all kind of end up in the same spot and, and that the real key for me is that that committee has to give me context. You know, if it's somewhere between five to 12 people, most of the time it can be maybe 20, but let's say five to 12 people and those five to 12 people have to represent 300 members, 400 members, however many members there are to a club. So I need a nice cross section uh, in that committee to let me know what people are thinking. Um, I really try to work uh, along the process to know that before I, I stand in front of 300 members, that I, I have a sense of what they're thinking, what they're feeling, the questions they're going to ask. Uh, that's huge, huge for me uh, to communicate. And I'd say the, the thing I picked up most along the way, maybe even in high school, that didn't register at the time, but is something that I, I think your students might value, is trying to be a good listener, uh, trying to, to look people in the eye, truly listen, ask good questions. Um, under even if you disagree with that person or you have a stance that's opposite uh, of theirs you ought to at least respect and understand where they're coming from and the more you can do that the better served you're going to be and whether you go on to be a, a golf course superintendent or a, um, a landscape contractor or a school librarian um, understanding listening and uh, being a, an effective communicator is, is the number one key and it's not easy you can be nervous um it's part of the deal uh the more you do it the better you are at it but it, it's hugely important and i know that sounds cliche as can be because I've, I've seen my kids roll their eyes at me when i say it but. absolutely not that is one of the most important things that we try to teach here because you never know what you're going to miss and you never know what you're going to learn in any situation really it's it's definitely something to take to heart in any situation whether it's math class whether it's this class whether it's your parents it's always important to hear what is going on and who's really giving you knowledge that will take you far in life you know um so it's definitely something that we as a class should definitely be listening to you hear that zach be a good listener just saying <laughs> Hey, I listen to music all the time while I'm working too. So I'm going to start Zach on. <laughs> yeah. Now, with such a with such a large scale project like a golf course, how difficult is it to budget out everything? Everything, and how difficult is it to budget what is the most important to construct? My, that's a great question, Ryland. I my my biggest fear um, ever is to give a number early or whenever it's time to give the number and when we get to do the work i'm off 
I mean, it is sleepless nights, you know, pit of your stomach. It, it's a concern to, to, to think it's going one way and end up another. Uh, I try to use what I call kind of unit. It's in the industry, not just me. In the industry, a unit price contract. And basically what that means is I divide the golf course down to its smallest piece. And the piece that the contractor or builder is going to use to uh, send her up an invoice that then the, the client's going to pay the owner club whatever and when i break it down into those pieces then i try to keep track of that with my cad program it, it's scaled off right so I'm, I'm able to draw what the green's going to be i click a button it tells me how big it's going to be and then i translate that into an excel file that then allows me to calculate all the units of different materials that are go, going to go into that green. And then that allows me to build a budget. And so if you've seen the movie Patriot, which is, um, you guys are, it's like a black and white movie to you guys now probably, but when I was your age, it was pretty fresh. But the line in there of aim small, miss small is huge. And so when it comes to budgets, I try to aim small, miss small, meaning that try to be as, as accurate as I can up front and then it, it leads to smaller misses. And a contingency, that word, I don't know how much you cover in your class, but yeah, a contingency basically is a percentage or a, a dollar figure that you put in a budget for unforeseen things. So whether it be you're going to dig a bunker and all of a sudden you find a rock or you find a, an old well or you know whatever it could be, that contingency fund, the extra dollar amount in your budget helps you stay on track. So we uh, had talked back in January. I think it was January. It might have been a little later. But uh, you had just been working on the reconstruction at Congressional Golf Club right down the road from where we're at here at Brentsville, uh, which we were hoping to visit before COVID hit. And that was fun, you know. <laughs> um, brutal. It's been insane. I can't even understand it, honestly. What is it, the process of sort of being selected and going through a process to be the one, the architect to be the head choice for the bidding process? Yeah. Um, you're saying from the, the construction process, Drew, or, or how they selected me? So how did they select you specifically? Sorry. Yeah, just... so, no, that's all right. I just wanted to make sure I was answering the right thing. Uh, so typically, uh, the interview process, again, can be kind of varied. There can be a, a phone call one day that says, hey, we want you. Um, we come to our golf course and let's figure out how to make it happen. And then uh, there's uh, RFPs, which is a request for proposal. Um, I get a lot of those. I have a, a couple sitting here actually in my inbox right now. And basically that is uh, kind of a form a club will send to multiple architects and you fill out your information, your client list, um, things you've done, your interest in their project, maybe some um, things that you see, opportunities you see. Uh, then the next level would be like an on-site interview where you go walk the golf course with a, a series of, of folks from that golf course. Most of this is renovation work, okay, not new construction. Um, you meet with the golf course superintendent, the golf professional, the general manager, you know, you, you try to, in my mind, I'm always trying to look for, for a great team to work with. That's most important to me way more uh, than anything else is to have some, a fun group to work with and a group that has a common goal. 
And then, um, then it can go to formal interviews, which would be uh, either a set number of questions or a uh, presentation of your own making. I'm, uh, I've, I've probably done, uh, I probably received more jobs from my, maybe my interviewing skills than, than, um, than, than anything. And I try to show, if I'm excited about a project, I'm gonna show the club how excited I am about that project. And I'm going to show uh, whether it be research or design ideas or things that I see as opportunities and try to show them that, hey, I'm, I'm excited about potentially being part of your team. Um, I want to be here. And I think that's that served me really well. And uh, so, yeah, it can take different different ways to get there. But that's that's kind of the process. I think at Congressional, it was uh, there were some unique circumstances there, but I think you know, there was like 30 some architects at one point that were in the mix, which is kind of crazy. That's awesome. That's crazy. Um, what is the, once you've gone through the, sorry, just making a left turn here. Um, once you go through the process of like bidding and being selected and like you said, 31, that's, that's awesome. What are the first steps of the construction aspect, whether it's Let's say it's uh, reconstructing a congressional. Uh, what were your first steps when it came to the reconstruction of it? Uh, was it clearing everything out? Was it uh, sort of using the material that was there and then creating around it? Um, how do you go about the actual uh, physical aspect of your job? Okay. Yeah, so I guess we skipped over a little bit of a step of permitting, which I don't want to spend a lot sorry, of time on. Sorry. No, it's all right. It's all right. But that's Perfect. something that... the the students should be aware of, you know, any land disturbance over 5,000 square feet in most areas uh, on the East Coast will generate a potential land disturbance permit. Some of your work can be considered maintenance and doesn't trigger that permit, but for the most part, any major land disturbance, like a congressional was 160 some acres, you know, that we needed a lot of permitting and then the permit actually drives the schedule. So, um, you know, it'll tell you kind of the sequence that you have to kind of work in. For the most part, it is tree removal and demolition would be the first step. Um, you know, clearing the site, getting it ready to, to work. And then um, huge believer in most on most properties to strip the topsoil. That's kind of a, a big thing of taking the top four to six inches off. And then you're grading all your dirt and putting that material back down. The idea is that you've got uh, sustainable uh, medium to grow grass on when you're done. Um, salvaging any materials you can, recycling cart path material potentially, uh, bunker sand. At Congressional, we use the bunker sand to top dress the, the native areas. Um, we use the cart path material for our staging compound to, to drive construction vehicles on. So uh, those are some of the first steps. Um. It, during the process and when you get from, again, what you're saying, stripping everything down to the skids and then starting to establish everything, um, what are some of the biggest hurdles that you face, uh, whether it's weather, um, whether it's uh, maybe different aspects that maybe you have to bid out for larger things, uh, maybe equipment failure, stuff like that. What are some of the biggest hurdles that you face when you're actually putting your plan into place and getting to that final product? Yeah, you know, from an architecture perspective, I'd, I'd say anytime you're anticipating sight lines on paper, 
um, you're taking a little leap of faith that the, the sections you're drawing and the, the work that you're doing on paper will produce what it looks like, what you hope it looks like in the dirt. You know, that's probably the, the, the biggest uh, thing that you're trying to, to work on. And then from, again, from that design standpoint, if you've miscalculated what you think it's going to look like, then you better have enough in the budget to, to make it the way you want it to, to be. So there's a little bit to that. Um, you know, rock is a huge, everybody gets nervous with rock. A uh, great story about that, the Country Club of Virginia, we just did a, a large practice facility at the uh, James River Clubhouse, which is out on the west side of Richmond. And we were lowering the, the high point and taking that dirt and putting it in the low so that we could create a better practice facility so you could see golf balls land basically at 100 yards. And we had no idea uh, that underneath uh, the existing tee was a, a line of rock. So we had to incur the cost of, of removing that to then be able to build what we wanted to. So the, the rock is always a scary thing. If you look at irrigation contracts, rock is all, there's always a rock clause in, you know, irrigation installation. Um, and then, you know, wet conditions, the weather schedule, huge. Um, I've spent the last couple of days doing contractor interviews uh, at Bayville uh, down in Virginia Beach. And we've been talking about, you know, what's our window for construction? What's the anticipated weather? I had a builder yesterday had the rainfall chart out and he read off how much rain annually or whatever monthly uh, could be anticipated. I, it was a brilliant move, um, something to really think about. So weather is, yeah, certainly a, a deal. So when you're working in the environment we are with living things, your growing season, whether it's trees, grass, whatever, farming, whatever, your growing season, that's it. Uh, Mother Nature's undefeated. It's going to turn cold in the winter. Uh, it's going to, you know, maybe have tropical storms in, in late summer. You know, there's, there's things that are going to happen. So you need to ha hit your grassing windows and understand where the risks lie. Um, and so, you know, seeding greens around here, we want the seed in the, on the ground by September 15th uh, in most places so that bent grass can germinate and grow. Um, so you're constantly working around those things. I think we need to uh, make a t-shirt, uh, Mother Nature's Undefeated. I think you'd sell a lot of those. Yeah, <laughs> Do it, I'll buy one. I want a hoodie though. No, yeah, of course. <laughs> um, with everything that you, you've done, some of the most incredible golf courses in the country from Oakmont, again, I said Shinnecock before, um, it, and it's just so impressive with everything that you've done and where you've worked congressional, all that. What has there ever been one course that's been most memorable? Um, and what, what is it like for you as a golf course architect to be able to walk back out after maybe like a year or two after you finished your reconstruct or construction, whatever it is, um, for you to walk back out and see your work and seeing the golfers play on it and how they love it and stuff like that. What is that feeling like? Yeah, it's hard for me to pinpoint one project that stands above the others. Um, certainly Inverness Club in Toledo has a special place in my heart, mainly because it was, uh, they, they took a huge leap of faith in me. Uh, Oak Hill, very similar. Um, and, and the product, you know, turned out, both those products turned out so nicely. Um, I'll tell you, I, I don't know if it's every architect or if it's just me, but 
I'm, I'm a huge critic of my own work. So some days I can show up on a project and I'm looking at stuff that either I'm doing currently or I've just completed or maybe it's been done for a while and I'll look at it and I'll be like, you know, man, I wish I could do this or that or, you know, do I want to change anything or do I, you know, um, it, it's, it's funny. Some days things just don't look great to me. And then some days I'll show up in the same things that bothered me before I'm great with. I'm just like, you know, I can't believe we created that as a team. So I don't know if that's me being uh, uh, mentally challenged or what, but uh, that's certainly, to be honest, that goes through my head. And uh, I hope your students realize that that's just part of the deal, that it's, it's not a, a stream of perfection. Um, and it's, it is funny though, as much as I'll be, you know, early in my career, I remember not sleeping at night over a sand line. You know, I'd painted a bunker edge and I just, it was driving me nuts. I didn't like it. And I'd, I'd toss and turn all night, not sleep a bit over a silly bunker line. And I'd get up early the next morning and go wherever it was and fix it. Um, and, um, you know, that's, uh, I don't, I don't know if that's great or not, but it's, it's pretty amazing when I go back to look at, at the places I've worked, I never, I hardly ever see those things that drive me nuts in the moment. Um, you know, when you're in the heat of it, you're constantly, your mind's constantly racing. You're constantly trying to produce the best product. And, you know, for me personally, I'm driving myself to do that. Um, and at the end of the day, you go back and you look and I, I can't really think of much instance where it's not, you know, wow, I can't believe I got that opportunity. Um, I'm, uh, I'm from a little town in, in nowhere, Virginia, you know, to, to have this opportunity is, is pretty awesome. Have you ever had the opportunity to collaborate with any other architects? And if so, how was that experience? What was that experience like? Yeah, out on, out on my own, Rylan, I haven't really um, done a lot of that. We have a special project that I, I called some people together uh, to look at. It's a new golf course. I'm not sure it's going to happen, so I, I don't know where that would lead. I would say that I picked up quite a bit along the way uh, working at McDonald and Sons. I did some work um, along, you know, for or along other architects, not really me um, expressing design philosophies to them, but more following direction. And I tell you, that was an interesting experience because I, I never really had that outside of that connection. You know, I never worked in an office with a, another golf architecture firm. And, um, learning, you know, how people acted in the field, how they treated others, you know, how they managed uh, potential problems, how they saw, you know, how they translated their vision into a communication piece that allowed the operator to shape the golf course to their vision. There are so many different ways to, to do that communication piece of so seeing how uh, different architects do that uh, was, was very valuable. Um, but, you know, unfortunately, I haven't had that opportunity uh, in, the, in the most recent past. Um, but I would say that if, if you're a good architect, you're always going to listen to the team around you and try to, to make the best product. I'm certainly not one that feels that my way is the highway. 
so I'd say, I, you know, I collaborate on every project with the golf course builder and with the superintendent and the committee and we work together and that, and that's, it's fulfilling. So you have been uh, recognized as one of the top three experts, uh, expert golf course architects by golf digest, which I, again, that's even bigger when it comes to, again, not a turf industry magazine in a sense, um, how much does that mean to you and how have you seen that sort of develop in your career to this point where, again, you're among people who have gotten the opportunity through whether it's their golf skills or something not related to what you worked for and how you got to where you're at. Um, how is that uh, for you and to really represent our industry as a whole and how it's not impossible to do something that is this lucrative and that is this important to again a, a simple superintendent around the country you know yeah true I, I didn't know that was happening um i don't think i knew that was even going to be published until it was out i think a buddy of mine sent me a picture of that from inside golf digest so thanks for um, letting us know digest geez <laughs> yeah i mean it's 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 pretty crazy pretty cool uh for sure um it certainly helped me, you know, um, I struggled for a long time trying to get jobs and interviewing at places where I knew I had the skills and, and the, the uh, drive uh, to be their architect. And I didn't have enough uh, experience or uh, project list to get the job. And certainly things like that have helped me uh, get my foot in the door at some really fabulous places. Um, but I, I, I kind of always, um, in the back of my mind, I'm always willing and understanding that it could all go away and, you know, um, thing can be fleeting at times. And if, if I have to go back and, and be, uh, you know, uh, assistant superintendent or something, if, if, you know, if I had to go start over, uh, I'd, I'd, I'd go do it. Uh, do whatever it takes. And uh, it, it's been a heck of a journey. I, I'm having a lot of fun. And, uh, you know, it's, I get out of bed early every day to do this. And I typically work late. Um, and uh, it's a lot of fun. So I, I don't know, that really wasn't an answer, Drew. Sorry. No, that it definitely was. And you're never with the work ethic and the time that you put in. And again, the obstacles you had to overcome, I don't think anyone will ever uh, say that you're going to become an assistant superintendent anywhere anytime soon. <laughs> It'd be okay. But I understand. Uh, and, uh, and that's great because it is, it is important to understand uh, anywhere in the industry and anywhere in any job. It's, it's not something that you get to and you're good. You have to keep on working. You have to keep being determined in what you're doing. Um, and, and, and to go with that, it's just understanding how you can make everyone else around you better. And that's what you do from everything that I've seen and talking to you and understanding what your job is. It's insane to me. Um, understanding all the different aspects and you're going through all the different materials and whatnot. Um, it's, it's crazy because I would lose my mind. And you're talking about not sleeping and I, I wouldn't sleep ever. I'd be like, okay, I messed that up. I messed that up. I need to fix that. And, and <laughs> I, yeah. what you do is it's, it's incredible. And I, it's fascinating to me. So uh, my next question is sort of with everything you sort of talked about the evolution, what has changed about your job most 
from when you first started, uh, maybe not with your company, but when you first started as an architect, uh, how has it changed? What's the biggest component that's changed from then until now? Um, yeah, the utilization of survey technology, that piece has changed the most. Um, and then personally for me, um, I don't, I used to spend more time physically building, you know, uh, everything from having a shovel in my hand, uh, operating equipment stuff. That's certainly, I don't have as much time to do that as I used to, even though I really enjoy playing in the dirt. Uh, the technology piece, the, the surveying and, and that um, information, I, I used to have to lay out, we'd lay out a golf course by marking out three points on the golf hole, the, a tee location, one tee location, one center point in the fairway and one center point at the green. And then we physically pull a tape measure, a 300 foot tape measure and drive a stake every hundred feet. And then I would physically draw on a piece of paper, 90 degrees right or left of that grid of every hundred feet and locate every bunker, every line of disturbance, everything off of that. And now with GPS, we have a handheld unit and it goes right to wherever that thing is um, it's so much more efficient. It's ridiculous. Thank goodness for technology. Yeah. I'm, just, I'm thinking about walking the 300 feet and then just repeatedly 18 times, you know, Jeez. <laughs> um, when you're creating the blueprint and this is sort of off topic and I probably should have asked this earlier when we were talking about it. Um, do you go hole by hole and do you just have like a master blueprint with it afterwards? Um, with all 18 or all nine, whatever you're working on, what does that process look like? Um, for I'm, gonna give, I'm gonna give you a behind the scene if oh, I don't make anybody seasick here. But so um, I have multiple monitors in my office. So I've got my laptop that you guys are on. And then I'll have CAD, not that I, I haven't been working while we've been talking by the way, but I had this up before <laughs> we started. So, uh, totally fine. yeah, so there's CAD, uh, CAD file and, um, you know, I can zoom in and out, work around. Typically I will work in uh, sequential order on this particular golf course. I actually skipped the first hole because I had some things I needed to figure out with the practice facility. And then I'll pull up historical information. This is an aerial from 1934 of that golf course. So it gives me some perspective of how the golf course was, uh, formatted. And then uh, this monitor, which I, I just got, uh, it's a vertical monitor um, and it allows me like easier to write letters and things, but I'll pull up different photos. So, uh, sorry, this is a photo, uh, you know, from where I walk the golf course. So then when I'm sitting at my desk, the process, uh, I have a lot of things where, that I can draw on to, to actually do the design work. That's awesome. And I love how it's like you have all the different angles lined up. Um, and it's, and that's, uh, that's really, it's just cool. Uh, especially with the photos from sort of how you build up and you come down to where you are. I think that's incredible. Um, so I'm going to wrap this up because we've had you on for a really long time and sorry for the technical difficulties no, and everything. So um, we asked these two questions at the end of every podcast. Um, because it's curious to see where everybody goes with their uh, train of thought. If you could right now tell yourself when you first started uh, with the, I forget the name of the company, but first started as a golf course architect, 
what would be one thing that you could tell yourself to make it a little bit easier on you now uh, and not now, easier back then leading up to now? Yeah, it's, it's probably something on the, in the line of, of perseverance. Um, you know, I remember a, a day I, I put an application and, and went and interviewed with a landscape company because I, I didn't think I was going to get anywhere. I was frustrated. And um, it's hard to see. You, you're, you, <laughs> it's impossible to see your future, right? So you just keep plugging along. And you're going to make some mistakes. Um, hopefully you have enough success along the way that, that you feel that you can continue. Um, but I, I'd, I'd make sure I, I'd, I'd tell myself, listen, enjoy the journey and, uh, you know, stick with it. Um, and I, I truly believe that in, in all walks of life, you know, uh, st- slow down enough to enjoy it because I, I do look back on it and think, man, I just worked, worked, worked and didn't quite enjoy it along the way. Um, and then uh, the other thing I would say is don't, don't put yourself in a box where you only want to concentrate on one thing, have a, a well-rounded life, whether it be uh, social aspects, uh, hobbies, uh, or even other facets of, of what you're learning. You know, Virginia Tech, I wish I'd done a little better job of appreciating all the other things uh, that was happening in my curriculum. I was pretty laser focused uh, for golf, it, but I, you know, I picked up enough of the other stuff to help me have conversations and, and be around other professionals and understand different aspects. But keeping an open mind when it comes to that stuff would just be huge. That's that's awesome and it's perfect. Um, what would you? Uh, sort of a last type thing and it's not just to turf grass or entering a field in golf course architecture what would be the best words of wisdoms you could give the kids who are looking right now at going into their futures whether it's going to college for something or going to uh, an industry or right out of high school what would be your best words of advice for the kids uh, when entering the real world yeah um You know, I, I want every person to have the ability to try to live their dream. I've certainly had that opportunity and, and I cannot be more thankful to the people that helped me get here. Um, and I know it, it certainly is a rare opportunity, but that doesn't mean you should ever give up on your dream. Uh, chasing that dream is huge. Um, what's the, the old dominion song? I don't know if you got any country music fans, uh, in your class, but, uh, um, chase the dream, not the money. There's a line in one of their songs I actually went to school with a couple of those guys. Uh, but I know what you're talking about. Yeah. We have that sign up actually in our kitchen. Nice. Um, and, and so that's huge. And then I watched something recently that I thought was pretty interesting and I, and I'm going to say this and I didn't watch the whole lecture. So I'm, I might be setting myself up for failure here, but uh, a professor, I think it was at New York, uh, NYU maybe talked about the algebra of happiness and in kind of his general gist of the part I I've watched was that making sure you, you try to find something that you're good at. And I, I thought that was very interesting that, that that was kind of a different take than just following something you're passionate about, but also try to follow something that you're good at. And I think his general gist with that was the idea that if you're doing something that you're good at, um, you have a certain set of skills that, that make you marketable. 
uh, and, it, and when you're successful, generally you're happy. Um, and so, you know, think about the things you're, you're good at and think about the things you're passionate about and try to, you know, find where they intersect. I, I love that. Cause that, that really is true. You can be passionate about something and, uh, sorry, sometimes you just not, are not the best <laughs> person to fill that position or, baseball player maybe even it's yeah, it's definitely sure, something sure. it's it's something to definitely be curious and understand everything about um so uh i want to thank you so much for coming on what do you guys say thank you thank you thank you oh, you're very welcome thanks for joining thank you thanks for taking the time let me see.